0: Yeah, and it's just a delight to be able to worship with all of you this morning, um, to be able to sing songs of God's praise, to be able to pray together, to be able to just hear God's word together. Um, it's just an absolute delight for me, so, so I, I certainly appreciate that. I want you to uh, take a moment and imagine. Take a moment and imagine. Imagine American prisoners of war held behind barbed-wired fences during World War II, with little food and filthy conditions on the verge, on the cusp of of death. Outside, outside the barbed wire fence, there there are other soldiers that look on and see their filthy conditions, see the horrible situation that they're they're in with no hope, with nothing to look forward to. Then somehow, a a shortwave radio is smuggled into the encampment, And all of a sudden, things begin to change. Things begin to change. All of a sudden, those who are outside the fence are are looking in, and they're seeing that the the, the disposition uh, of the American soldiers, soldiers, those who are hollow-eyed and unshaven and and, and frail, all of a sudden, their disposition has changed. There's joy. There's a sense of hope. There's a sense of delight. They, 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 They begin to even cheer they begin to even cheer and throw their pans into the air in delight and whoop and holler. And those outside the fence look on in confusion because they don't understand. They don't understand. You see, they haven't seen anything change. Those American soldiers are still in exactly the same condition that they were a few minutes ago. But but there's a disposition change. The thing that's changed. The thing that, that has created the joy, the thing that's created the hope, is the American soldiers have gotten word. They have gotten word. They, they have heard the enemy lines have been broken through. The decisive battles have been fought already. They, they know that liberation is close. It's at hand right now. And they have hope. They have hope. This, this is the problem that every human being finds themselves in. We, we are all POWs. We are all held behind enemy lines, waiting for good news. This morning, I want to take some time to talk about the gospel. I want to take some time to talk about the gospel. Because the gospel is so essential. It's so important for everything, for everything. It's important as we are genuinely those behind the enemy lines longing for a message of hope in this world. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, one of my former professors, commenting on the state of seminarians, those both coming into seminaries and then, and then even leaving the seminaries. The school began to recognize, Trinity began to recognize that, that those who were coming in and leaving we were struggling to actually give definition to the gospel. You know, it was one of those words that people used so commonly that they had heard so widespread that they actually lacked clarity on what it, what it meant. So, so as the school and as my professor began to ask questions, they would get back answers like, well, what's the gospel? Well, it's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly that, that's part of it, but it is that. Is that the gospel? Or they would say something like, well, Jesus' command, love God and love your neighbor. But again, I ask, "Is, is that really the gospel? Or they would say something like, well, you know, it's all about salvation. It's all about salvation and getting ready for eternity and social justice, helping the weak and the marginalized and the needy. Also good. But is that really the gospel? The gospel is the greatest message. It's the greatest thing that has ever been proclaimed. It's the very thing that bifurcated time and space. It broke into our reality and it changed everything. And even more significantly than changing time and space, it actually changed the hearts and souls of men. So then I ask you, Do you know the gospel? Are you prepared to actually give voice into it? If you are asked as you leave here, what is the gospel? Are you able to communicate it clearly? The message that not only changed us, but continues to change us, continues to change our world. So this morning then, I want to talk about what, what is the gospel what is the gospel? Have you heard the news? So we'll kind of break it up into two different sections. We'll look first specifically at what is the good news, but then I want to to follow it up with what's good about the good news? What's good about the good news? We'll be looking at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 8. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 8. And I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Dear Father, Lord, I I thank you. I thank you so much for this morning, God. I thank you for the opportunity to be in your word, Father, to, um, to hear your gospel, to hear the good news of your son and all that he has accomplished. Father, I pray that you would continue to transform us with the power of your gospel, Lord, that your spirit would be, would be upon us during this time this morning, Lord, just shaping us, changing us, God, bringing, um, bringing worship to our lips, Father, as we hear your word. Lord, I pray that, uh, that as I speak, God, that you would be with me, Lord. I pray that my words would, would quickly be forgotten, but your words would, um, would stand, Father, and continue to change and continue to have an effect. God, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So what is the good news? So our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians picks up in the midst of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church has been struggling with with a wide degree, with a wide latitude of issues. And so they've actually addressed different letters to Paul, asking him to deal with this situation, this situation, this situation. And so as Paul kind of makes his way through 1 Corinthians, he keeps dealing with all these various issues. And, And it culminates then in a specific issue about the resurrection, the resurrection. You see, the Corinthian believers were very informed by their Roman and by, by their Greek background, which which did not look highly upon resurrection. So Paul, then, in an attempt to, to rebut them, in an attempt to correct them, he goes back to the foundation, to the bedrock of their faith. He goes back to the gospel. He said, "Okay, okay, you've received the gospel, you believe the gospel. Well, let's go there." Because as we contrast the gospel with now what you're saying about the resurrection, I think you'll see that your your sense, your notion of the resurrection doesn't actually make sense. So Paul corrects them then with probably one of the clearest expressions of the gospel that we have in all of scriptures. Beginning in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. Now, this might seem a little simple, maybe even a silly place to start, but what does the word gospel even mean? So, so not the content of the gospel, but what does the word actually mean? Well, the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which is actually two, two things. You have your prefix, you have your main word, they've been put together. The eu, the prefix, means good. It means good. So it's, it's where we get words like euphemism from today or eulogy or things like that. You actually means good. And then angelion is where we get our word angel from. It actually means messenger. So you, angelion, actually means good news. So the word gospel literally means good news, which, you know, etymology is always fun. It doesn't fill in what the gospel is for us, but at least maybe we can impress our friends when we talk about it. We can say, well, I know the etymology. I know where the word comes from, Um, which always impresses people. But, uh, But where does the word actually come from? Where does the word actually come from? You see, Christians didn't actually make up the word gospel. It didn't come from Christians. It actually preceded Christians. It has some roots in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's used sparingly, but it has some roots. But even probably more specifically for the Corinthian audience, it was actually even a political term. It was a political term. It was, it was the term that was used to describe, to refer to the announcement, the reign of a new Caesar. When a new Caesar came into power, a gospel would be sent out—an announcement that a new king, a new Caesar, has arrived. It was—it was a polemical statement. It was a combative statement. So, so when Paul and the Christians said, "I have a gospel," they were picking a fight. They—they they were picking a fight. This was this. These were fighting words. Paul was in essence saying, "That's not a gospel. I'll show you a gospel." Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus, Jesus is Lord. I'll show you a real gospel. Well, what's the content then of this regal message? What's the content of the gospel? Uh, Paul is relating here a message that has come to him, but then he's also passed on to the other churches around the Roman Empire. Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar, he, he describes this passage that we're entering into as kind of the bare bones description of what the gospel is, the bare-bones version. So so we're going to look at the stripped-down, bare-bones version, but then we're going to put a little bit of meat on it and make it a little more of a fleshy, kind of elaborated version to spell out the details. Verse 3, skipping down a couple of verses. Verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he died. So there are three things I want to pull out here. First, what is a Christ? What is a Christ? Um, You know, Nino Montoya. He would say, "You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means." Um, What what is what is a Christ? Um, Some mistakenly take Christ to be Jesus's last name. You know, his his mother was Mary Christ, and his dad was Joseph Christ, and he had a little puppy dog named Fido Christ, right? Some mistakenly get that idea. You know, I spent a good portion of my life in the South, and in the South, Jesus even picks up a middle initial sometimes, Jesus H. Um, also, also, I don't think literally his name. Um, the term Christ comes from the Hebrew Messiah. Messiah, Messiah was an Old Testament expectation. It was an Old Testament expectation about a coming one, a long-awaited king who would perfectly represent God to his people. He would be the king who would bring in the reign of God. He would bring in his kingdom for his people, who would bring his people Israel back together. He'd be be a descendant of David. He would be the perfect representative who would lead his people in worshiping God together. This was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. This was the Christ that they had been waiting for. So much Old Testament hope and expectation hung on him and His coming. His people longed for him. Second, this Christ, this Messiah, he died. He died. They weren't expecting that. The, the Jewish people weren't expecting their king to come and then die. They, they were expecting him to come and to change everything, to liberate them from the Roman rule, to bring peace to their land. They, were, they wanted to be done with the Pax Romana. They wanted the Pax of Christ. They wanted, to, they wanted his peace. They weren't expecting him to die. The Old Testament, it was there. It was written in the Old Testament. You have passages like Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So you have passages that clearly speak that he would die. But at the same time, the Jewish people didn't often equate the servant with the Messiah. So they were confused. They weren't expecting the death of their Christ. Third, he, he died for a reason, right? He died for a reason. He didn't just die because, because Rome got the upper hand on him. He didn't die because the, Rome, because the Jews defeated him. He died for a reason. It was because of our sins. Because of our sins. This assumes, rightly, that you and I are sinners. He died for us because we're sinners. And if you struggle to accept that humanity is sinful, then you don't watch the news often enough. We are a sinful lot of people. We have all sinned in Adam, and we have earned the consequences of our sin, which is death and separation from God. Paul actually, in Ephesians 2 and in Colossians 2, describes us as being dead in our sin. He describes us as just being walking corpses. Why does he do that? Because a corpse can't do anything to bring themselves back to life. We are dead in our sins. Not only that, but in Romans 5, he actually describes us as being enemies of God. We're enemies, so we're not even passive to him. We actually actually shake our fist at him. We actually fight against him in his purpose. We are enemies. So so here we are as enemies, but God is holy and just. How can these two things be reconciled, right? For God to be holy and just, you don't just wave a magic wand over over the unrighteous and say, well, we're going to make you righteous, and accept you in. I mean, could you imagine a judge in, in, in our day doing something like that? Just saying, Well, I, I realize you have done all these horrible things, but I'm just going to ignore that. That would be an unjust judge. That would be a judge without a job, right? But God is just and He is holy. So instead, God sent His Son pay the debt that we couldn't, to pay the debt that we wouldn't. His son, the perfect spotless lamb, the only thing in all of creation, undeserving of death, came to be our substitute and to pay the price for us. Tim Keller, a pastor out in New York, he put it this way, the gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are in themselves still sinning, Yet in Christ, in God's sight, they are accepted and righteous. So we can say that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but at the same time, more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. While this might seem like an odd element to include in verse 4, the, the, next, the next element of our statement is that he was buried. He was buried it's important because it shows the gravity of the situation. It shows the historicity of the situation. This isn't just some metaphorical death. This is a real buried death. He was genuinely dead and so Christ was buried. Then it goes on to say in verse 4 that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised on the third day. While Jesus' death was explained as necessary to deal with our sin, with our sin, it still leaves the question: how are we gonna follow a dead king? What are we gonna do? We've been left without our king. God answers by raising him from the dead. Jesus <laughs> defeated our death in his defeated our sin in his death and resurrection, but he showed himself as being victorious over death and sin in his resurrection as he came back. King Jesus didn't stay dead. Not only was he substituted, handed over to death, but he conquered it. He conquered it. He was the mighty, victorious king. And in his resurrection, his victory was proclaimed to all mankind. He was a mighty, victorious king. And just as in the case with his death, the whole of scriptures look forward to the day of his resurrection. They all looked forward to it. It wasn't anticipated by the Jewish people, but it was there in the Old Testament the whole time. Verse verses five through eight, and that Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The eyewitnesses, which not all of them are mentioned here, but the eyewitnesses and the empty grave function to ground. The resurrection in history. It's a historical event. It wasn't just something that people made up. It wasn't something that happened in, in the privacy of some cave with some private experience that no one else got to, got to see or, or got to behold with no historical evidence. This was something that was public for all to see, for many witnesses to gather around. Here in the passage, Paul, provi- Paul states that there are over 500 witnesses, many of whom are still alive when he's writing Corinthians right? And by ancient records, when they counted people, those probably would have been 500 males in attendance. They're not including probably the females and the children. So, so that number would have been significantly higher, right? Now, in the ancient world, you only need, they needed two witnesses to prove something. Paul provided well over 500, He provided well over 500 because that's how grounded the resurrection was in history. If you want to hear more about that, Pastor Jason preached on that recently (laughs) in an Easter sermon. This this is the gospel. This is the gospel. that, That Jesus came, that he died, and that he rose again for our sins. Right? That God drew near to us. He paved a way through the gruesome undoing of his son to fix A fractured world that had been broken, that had been undone. And in his undoing, he undid what had been undone. Through the sun, through the sun, he set back to rights his relationship with his creature. This is the message of our King who is supreme over all things, who is king over all things, who sits at the right hand of God, who declares his authority, who declares our future, who declares his might, who declares his victory to us. This, this, is, this is his message. His coronation wasn't flaunted with flowers and gold and elaborate pomp and circumstance. His coronation instead was marked by blood and the tearing of flesh and the crown of thorns and then finally his victory. His reign is the long-awaited good news. But it's not good news to everyone, is it? Because the coronation of a king is good news to the followers of the king. But wait, I thought Paul said earlier, we're enemies. So how is the good news good news for us? How is the good news good news for us? Or to put it another way, what's good about the good news? Going back to verses 1 through 2 verses one through two. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, there are three things I want to pull out from that description. The first thing is they had received the gospel. They had received the gospel. Now, received doesn't simply mean that they heard the gospel. Rather, they've heard it And they've embraced the gospel. They've embraced the gospel. They have trusted in the gospel for their salvation. They have trusted that Christ has done what they were not able to do. So the Corinthian believers then, they weren't saved by a good life. They weren't saved by being really moral people. They weren't saved by having Christian parents. They weren't saved by attending a confirmation. They weren't saved by by being baptized. They weren't saved by doing communion. They weren't saved by going to church on Sunday mornings. They weren't saved by going to the potluck after church on Sunday mornings. These these aren't the things that saved the Corinthian believers. They were saved by grace, by the grace of God that he had done through his son what no one else could. They were saved by grace as they trusted in the gospel to do what they couldn't do. They threw themselves helplessly before Christ as their only hope of salvation. Number two, that they stand in the gospel. They, they stand rooted in the gospel. The gospel presently fuels the life of the Corinthian believers. It's their source of powerful living, spiritual living. They didn't lose the need for the gospel after their conversion, right? The gospel isn't just for non-Christians, and then, and then you enter into the spiritual life, and it's, oh, that, that was good. I don't need that anymore. I, I can just kind of leave that behind, right? Um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. We continue to walk out the gospel. They continue to find strength in the Spirit to both fix their eyes upon the beauty and the majesty of Christ, and then to carve away like a careful surgeon carving the cancer of sin out of their hearts. This was the work of the gospel as applied by the Spirit into their lives. We as Christians then are called to lean into the gospel, to depend on Christ because he's our life, he's our worldview, he's our purpose, he's our desire, he's our treasure, he's our everything. John Calvin, a 16th century pastor and reformer, he wrote this about the gospel. The gospel is not a doctrine of tongue, but a doctrine of life. It cannot be grasped by by reason and memory alone, but it's fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates the inner recesses of the heart. I think that's true. I think that's a I think that's a good description of the powerful ongoing work of the gospel in our lives. And then number three, that they are being saved by the gospel. The, there is a future element to this. Sometimes when Paul speaks about salvation, he speaks about past tense, right? For as by grace you have been saved. It was past tense, which is true. And that talks about the beginning of our relationship with God. When we, are, when we are justified, when we are put into right relationship with him, we are saved. But there's also a future element that we look forward to. There's a hope for the future. There is a work that he is still continuing to do and will continue to do. It will come to culmination in our glorification in brand new bodies, in being transformed fully, in bringing his presence that we continue to look forward to. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about for the rest of First Corinthians 15, describing this physical, glorious bodies that we're waiting for. When everything is made new and there is no more sickness and there is no more pain and there is no more death, and, and we will stand in the presence of our God and he will wipe away every tear. And this is something that we continue to long for as those who are behind barbed wire fence um, I, I used to work at a camp out in um, East Texas, Sky Ranch. Um, I worked there a number of summers, and we, we, we had some snake issues. Um, we had some snake issues there. One, one year in particular was pretty bad. And so, one thing I learned about snakes—I don't know if this is true of all venomous snakes, but but at least the copperheads that we were dealing with—was um, so you kill them, right? Well, obviously you kill them because because yeah, they're snakes. Um, so so you kill them, uh, but but when you kill them, they can actually still bite you after they're dead. Um, they, they can still bite you up for to like 24 hours later. So, so, so we would kill them, remove the head, and then just carefully kind of dispose of that to make sure no one got bit or injected because it was a particularly venomous snake. It's the same way. It's the same way for us now, right, with Satan. He has been defeated in the cross. He has. Death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. And yet now we hang in that 24-hour interval where we are waiting and waiting and it's coming soon. That's where we're at. That's where we stand. What is this salvation that we are looking forward to? What is the salvation that we are excited about? Well, it's a couple of things. It's salvation from hell and from God's wrath, right? The wrath of God is rightly coming upon us. It was rightly um, destined for us because of our sin Right, We have condemned ourselves. We have chosen sin over the glory of God. We have chosen perversion over the beauty of a Savior. We we have chosen sin. And so the wrath of God should rightly come upon us. But we have been saved from it. In Christ, we find freedom from it. So it's salvation from hell and from the wrath of God. But it's also salvation to eternal life. It's salvation to eternal bliss, to, to renewal, to healing, to liberty, to permanent peace. These are the promises of eternity that we wait for, that we long for. They give us joy and hope. They describe an existence that is beyond our greatest imaginations. If you took a moment to imagine your greatest experience in this life, the most joy-filled experience in this life, it would pale in comparison to what we are waiting for. It wouldn't begin to do justice to all that awaits us. But something even more significant awaits us. Something even more significant than all of that. The thing that makes eternity so great is that we'll be with Christ. We will be with Christ. It's not all the wonderful promises that we will enjoy the most. It's not the great treasures that we will enjoy the most. It's not all the loved ones that will surround us that we will love the most. It's not even the glorified bodies that we will love the most. The thing that we will love the most is God is God. That's the thing that makes it so great. Because if, if we got all those things, but God wasn't there, then we would still be destitute. If we got all of the greatest things, all of the greatest treasures, all of our greatest imaginations, but God still wasn't there, then it would be nothing. The good news is good news because God wants you to lay prostrate before him and drink at his well. Because God wants you to live a life of indulgent affection for him. That's what makes the good news good news. You know, my, my parents, grandma and grandpa, um, they often come visit us. And my, my parents or my, my kids have learned that when grandma and grandpa are there, their presence is inextricably linked to candy and, and, and toys and things like that. And so, so obviously it's always a joyous occasion. And then we begrudge them when they leave because we have to, like, take all their stuff to Goodwill and get rid of all the new toys. Uh, but, but, I mean, so, so my kids love those things. But, but there, there's a day in the future when they will look back on those times and the things they'll remember the most won't be the toys or the candy or things like that. It will be the joy that they experienced in the presence of grandma and grandpa. It, it's the same way for us, or <laughs> I wish it was the same way for us. I have to confess, too often I am too, I, am too, uh, I fixate too much upon the gifts of God and forget the giver. But there is a day coming There's a day coming when all of the gifts will pale in comparison. When the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The thing that makes the good news, good news is God and being able to enjoy him forever. Three applications. First, maybe you're here this morning and you haven't heard or you haven't embraced the gospel. Maybe this is new news for you. Maybe it's not new news for you, but maybe maybe the Spirit is doing something new in you and it's hitting you fresh this morning. My encouragement would be to embrace the gospel. There, there are many people here who love the Lord. I would encourage you to pull one of them aside and talk to them after the service, to pray with them after the service. Don't, don't ignore what the Spirit is doing in you. Don't ignore the resurrection and what Christ did. Don't ignore the witnesses and the, the empty tomb. Number two, live the gospel. Again, as we said, the gospel isn't just for non-Christians. It's for us to continue to live, to continue to find power. For a powerful antidote to sin and the corruption in our lives, and as a powerful remedy to turn our eyes to the beauty of our Savior. Live a life that reflects the gospel. The gospel should be our everything. It should be the thing at the forefront of our minds. So that, so that when I wake up in the morning and get out of bed, I'm not getting out of bed because an alarm clock told me to get out of bed. I want to get out of bed in the morning because of the gospel. Because the gospel is compelling me to get out of bed. So, so that when you go to work in the morning, you're not going to work because you need a salary. You're going to work because the gospel. So that when, when you play with your kids, when you spend time with your spouse, it's not first and foremost primarily because of them, though that's good also. But it's first and foremost primarily because of the gospel and because what Christ has done, because what Christ is doing. Everything revolves around the gospel. That's what we're striving for as Christians, to make the gospel central in our lives. And number three, share the gospel. Share the gospel. The message is meant to be shared and announcement is meant to be announced right? This is, this is the power of God for salvation, according to Romans 1, 16. It's the power of God for salvation, to bring people to himself. And you, as God's people, are not called to be miserly with the good news, but to be liberal and to be indulgent as you hand it out to others. We are surrounded by those who are perishing, so do not let, do not let fear reign in your hearts, So this morning we looked at the message of the gospel. We looked at the death and resurrection of King Jesus who gave himself for our sins in accordance with scriptures. And we we looked at the proper response to the gospel, the, the proper response and why the good news can be genuinely called good news for us. It's good news because it's the power of God for salvation so that we might know God. And through it, we can enjoy him forever. There is a military camp, and we are all POWs. We are behind the barbed wire fence, but we are not waiting without hope. We know the enemy lines have been broken through. Freedom is coming. Rejoice with me. Freedom is coming. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you for the freedom in your Son, God, I thank you for what he has accomplished. I thank you for what he is continuing to accomplish. I thank you that he reigns supreme, O oh Lord. God, I pray that the news of the gospel would continue to grip our hearts, that you would continue to grow our love and affections for you, Lord, and that you would use your word powerfully in our community. God, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.